decided without parents, without the matchmaker. On the other hand, did Adam and Eve have a matchmaker? Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitle movies list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. Before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is uh, very fittingly for the nicest number on the AFI list. It's Tootsie, uh, the 1982 Sidney Pollock film, which of course stars Dustin Hoffman playing himself in certain ways and also doing stuff about feminism and drag, and it's really something. And I, I mean that with a great deal of, of um, admiration is, I think, where I want to go with this, because this movie absolutely slays. Um, do I think it's going to make the next AFI list? I'm not going to bet on it. I think there is a reasonable chance this one gets gets canceled by discerning voters, even though I'm not sure that's necessarily fair. I think this movie is actually relatively self, um, self-knowing, um, but I do think that this one is, is a very interesting pitch for the modern day. It is not, it is not quite the kind of movie that I think we're likely to see again soon. I, not to, derail us at the start and I don't necessarily want to get into a conversation about what should and shouldn't be cancelled or what that even means my only question is because I have been wondering about this is do you think in the next version there will be like uh, I don't know how I want to put this like a toll against say Hoffman and like Kevin Spacey or uh, right figures like that do you think they will that will just drop a bunch of movies or I'm just kind of curious about that in general, not necessarily what should happen with them. I think the most interesting question is what they do with Woody Allen. Like this, this iteration of the list already dropped birth of a nation in favor of intolerance, which is something we're going to get to in several weeks. It's not close just yet, but it's, it's getting there. Um, I, I definitely wonder if Annie Hall is going to end up paying the price. And I mean, I think the fringe entries, like your your crimes and misdemeanors, Hannah and her sisters, pick your favorite Woody Allen movie, I guess. I think those were already kind of in jeopardy anyway, slash not on this list. Um, I think I think he and Polanski, I mean, Polanski, like, I don't pretend to be an expert in the Woody Allen stuff, and frankly, I'm not sure how I'd even start. But the Roman Polanski stuff seems incredibly clear cut to me, and I I am definitely I'm definitely curious about Chinatown. I I don't know if that one's gonna come back, but but those two those two directors stand out. This one I'm kind of being funny. I think I think just watching this one, you kind of understand this one's this one is pretty 
pretty intelligent about what it's trying to do. Um, but there are definitely other ones that I think are, are screwed. I think if Polanski's not gone already, he's probably still going to be on there. Um, yeah, Woody Allen's a good question. Though. I kind of wonder about Weinstein and if that's going to mean anything to some people. That's a whole different rabbit hole, though. But uh, yeah, that was just the question of lists, mm-hmm. not of relative merits. Uh, back to Tootsie. So Tootsie is uh, a very a very interesting movie, and I, I guess the only the only way to follow up a conversation about lists is to follow it up with a conversation about Oscars. Uh, so this came out in 82. 82 is actually a, a pretty decent year as far as that goes. Um, the winner that year is Gandhi, um, which I think is actually a pretty solid movie. I see I see a not insignificant amount of Gandhi slander out there, and I think that's not I think that's not fair. I am definitely not a Gandhi slanderer. Um, but the rest of the of the field that year is E.T. Um, missing. Missing is a movie that, well, let's start with E.T. E.T. is on the AFI list. We're going to get to that way later. It's pretty high on the list. Uh, Missing is a movie that I have pulled on and off the the subtitle list, the replacement list. It's a Costa Gavras movie about, it's based on the true story of a, of a young woman and her father-in-law who go looking for her husband in the, the aftermath of, a, of an American-backed coup. And that movie is really harrowing and tremendous performances from Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemmon. There's The Verdict, which is like Paul Newman being the, the grumpy old man. Not a movie I've seen since high school, so I won't, I won't pretend to know about it, um, other than Paul Newman is grumpy. And then there's Tootsie. And Tootsie is nominated for nine Oscars, which is kind of an incredible number, not because I think it shouldn't have been nominated for nine. Or am I miscounting? I think it's ten. I actually think I miscounted. I think it was nominated for ten Oscars. That's second to, to Gandhi, uh, which walked away with eight wins out of eleven total. Um, but Tootsie had had ten nominations, I think, and those those ten nominations are not irresponsible. Like this is this is a very very good movie, but it's also pure comedy like truly a very very funny movie um and and more than that a movie that's still funny in the present day and i will give you my example uh showed this to my movie club a year or two ago because it's pg or something um i don't know if it still would be now but it it was enough uh for back then um showed it to them and it slayed movie absolutely killed the kids loved it and if you can get the 15 and 16 year olds to laugh at a movie from 1982, you, the people making it in 1982 are doing something right. Um, this is a movie which has, even if, even if you're not a soap opera watcher, because a lot of the movie is sort of based on like gags about soap operas that frankly had to be explained to me when I was in high school and saw it for the first time. Um, there, there are just things about it there are one-liners, there are slapstick moments, there's like the cringe comedy. It's all here. This is this is a tremendously funny movie. Uh, and and a really well-acted one. Uh, the the one win they got was for Jessica Lange, who who won for supporting actress. And I realized what I did. I I counted nine categories, not nine nominations. That was my issue. I, I missed Terry Garr who is spectacular in this too. She's really wonderful. Um, but that's, that's this particular movie. I think it's incredible. It comes from a different time when you can give 10 nominations to uh, this kind of comedy, because the funniest movie that comes out in a giving year now is not going to get 10 nominations. It may not get two or three. Um, so it, it is, it is exciting at least that it was sort of recognized in its time by the Academy, and and obviously by the AFI list, which, again, has its 69th in what I think is just an inside joke for me, and the rest of the <laughs> internet, I guess. Well, I did, right when you mentioned that at the beginning, go look at what my nicest entry was, and I think Spin and AFI uh, both gave us a layup 
<laughs> because Bjork is the nicest oh. for the... <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> no, I was going to say, I like, I like, I don't know, a good chunk of 80s just stuff in general. Um, there's no way I am nostalgic for 1982, <laughs> but I do wish we still had an Oscars that, like invested in comedies this heavily like that would be really fun to me um and just even that list of best picture nominees is like a very interesting range mm-hmm. like this is this i'm looking at the ceremony now and like i don't know it's just like there's a really cool range and just uh not um you know classical diversity in any sense but just like diversity of genre perhaps that's kind of interesting um but that's sort of an aside, I guess. I, I guess I'm just saying, I, I like love for Tootsie <laughs> in all ways. So the premise of Tootsie, if you've been listening to us gush about it and talking about where it fits in like American cinematic history for the past 10 minutes, and this is an unfamiliar movie, uh, the basic idea behind it is that Dustin Hoffman is playing this enormously talented but also incredibly prickly actor who is really very much an actor's actor. Like he's, he's like running little clinics out of his home and other actors look to him as kind of an inspiration because he takes the craft so seriously, like just truly a, a really principled kind of guy, but also such an incredible pain to work with that no one will pay him or with, or if they do give him the job, they fire him because he's too annoying. Uh, so in, in, in the beginning, I said Dustin Hoffman's kind of playing himself, but he, he is playing himself. Dustin Hoffman is definitely playing a version of himself that I think people in Hollywood would recognize, which is you can't find anyone who's like, oh yeah, Dustin Hoffman, kind of a mediocre actor. Um, everyone only has the highest praise for him as, a, as an actor, but as a person, especially as the years have gone by, uh, I think there has been a definite shift to... Boy, just really not a pleasant human being. Um, so that, I mean, that's been sanded down. It is a comedy. It's meant to be funny. A lot of that is sort of played for laughs. Um, and I, I do sort of love this conversation he has early on with his agent, who's played by the movie's director, Sidney Pollock. And the two of them just have completely different ideas about what he should be doing. They get into a fight because Michael was supposed to be playing like a fruit in a, in a commercial for something and was arguing about what a fruit would or would not do. And, and Sidney Pollock's character is just like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> the entire premise was ludicrous. What are you doing? You were a tomato. You were a tomato. <laughs> That's exactly right. This is also, this is also the scene where we find out, um, that, that Dustin Hoffman is roommates with a guy who's kind of a, well, I, I, I don't want to say up and coming because I think that gives him a little too much credit, but uh, his roommate is Jeff, played by by Bill Murray in like an early-ish Bill Murray role. And like the entire supporting cast is filled with people who either already were legends or were going to become legends in their own way. It's really kind of special. Um, but Bill Murray is playing this completely spaced out human being who's writing a play called Return to the Love Canal. Which leads to my favorite line reading in in this movie, and one of my favorite line readings, period, where Michael is like trying to sell his agent on the idea of this play, and Sidney Pollock looks at him and says, People don't want to see a play about toxic waste. They can see that in New Jersey, which is the one joke about New Jersey in movies that I will laugh at literally every single time. It's it's that's like a brilliant scene. It is not even one of the scenes with one of the famous comedic actors in it. It's one of the scenes with the director in it. So like there's, there's a lot here that's just sort of like goofy to start with. The, the movie sort of gets going. uh, Once Michael decides kind of out of a fit of peak um, after his agent says, no one will hire you. He takes that as like a kind of personal challenge and so what he does is he dresses up in drag and goes for uh, an audition on a big soap opera, uh, which his friend um, Sandy was going for. His friend Sandy is played by Terry Garr, who we mentioned. I think she's, again, just the, the portrait of anxiety in this movie. Um, and he's sort of 
he's sort of seeing Sandy. There's like an on again, off again kind of vibe there or like off the whole time and trying to see how on looks like there's there's sort of an awkward between friendship and romantic thing going between them. And he goes in for this. He goes in for this particular um, piece, I guess. He goes in for the soap opera, calls himself Dorothy Michaels and gets the part and gets and and finds himself trapped increasingly in this soap opera setting. And there are a few things which, of course, happen. One of them is that because he has to be dressed as a woman all the time, there is a great deal of comedy that just comes from, like, you know, him having to dress as a woman all the time, and how is he going to get away with this? Part of it is also that he really finds out a lot about uh, the, the sexism that women are facing, and I think in 1982, this is... I don't want to, like make it sound silly by calling it a hot button issue or something, but it's in 82, it's definitely on people's minds. Like I think the idea of what women do in the workplace and how they're treated and, and how they ought to be treated is, is something that people start talking about more in the sixties and seventies. And by, by the early Reagan years, I think it's definitely part of the, part of the zeitgeist. And this movie is sort of speaking to that. And there are, there are people who work on this show who absolutely horrify Michael because of how how handsy they are. There is a there's a famous actor, John Van Horn, who's played by George Gaines, in a role that is equally stoned to the, what Bill Murray is doing, like which seems incredible to say. But the stoner energy from him is almost as strong, I think. And he like almost the first day on set, Van Horn just like kind of kisses uh, quote-unquote, quote, Dorothy, even though Dorothy has said no. And then, finally, there is a beautiful young actress named Julie, who's played by Jessica Lange, who is on the, who is on the show, and Michael, who is kind of a, kind of a predatory guy himself, uh, decides that he's going to find ways to get closer to her, and accidentally finds ways to get closer to her father, uh, who's played by Charles Durning in this, again, another incredible supporting role, another incredibly empathetic um, empathetic part for him. So that's what the movie is generally going for. It doesn't last. Everything falls apart. That's kind of the point. Um, but the different the different ways in which it falls apart are really <laughs> are really exceptional. And, and part of it, again, is just the sort of magic in this screenplay. And I will not quote this entire thing verbatim, even though I feel like I kind of want to. Um, I, think, I think the thing about you were a tomato and they can see that in New Jersey is kind of remarkable. Um, but there are also these, these incredible little in-jokes about being a theater person. There are these in-jokes about like working as an actor generally. There's that soap opera thing. This is... On its own terms, this is a tremendous soap opera spoof movie. Um, when when Michael is getting the new contract and he's like, how do I get out of this contract? Because I'm not trying to play someone playing someone for the rest of my life. This is driving me crazy. Uh, he manages to make it so that they have to film live. And that is where he reveals himself in this absolutely unhinged... <laughs> performance in which he is a mixture of ad-libbing and and performing this prepared speech about how he's not actually Emily Kimberly but he's Edward Emily's twin brother which is again like a perfect soap opera moment but the fact that no one else on set knows what's happening is what makes this just so perfect and if perfection can be improved upon the moment where Van Horn looks at him after the after they've cut to commercial and says, does Jeff know? In just like the absolute most sincere tone is is like an absolutely wonderful moment. It is the icing on the cake for a scene which has so much cake and so much icing already. In any event, that's Tootsie. Um, again, a movie that I think is is sort of is sort of intelligent about the fact that you can pretend to be 
something, but that doesn't mean you are something. Like, as as far as, as Michael learns, like, I think there's some part of him that thinks he understands women better, and literally that's true, having walked around a mile and more in their heels. But, like, at the same time, is is not taking those lessons to say, well, how should I be a better person, but how can I use this to my advantage to get in bed with the woman I want to get in bed with, which is something he tries to do, and the movie, to its credit, throws a drink in his face. Um, Tootsie, thoughts about that before we sort of head out from there? No, not really. I mean, you touched on all the stuff that stands out to me about it. I just... <clears throat> it's a fun time. It's really funny. Um, the tomato joke is my favorite. Um, <laughs> I, you mentioned her earlier, but Terry Garr is just chewing unbelievably throughout this unbelievable. the do you have any uh second all is always a fun moment to me but um yeah no i i touched on basically everything that stands out to me about it it's i i'm interested in this because it's not one that i've like particularly dug into before um i guess in terms of thematic connections like it is like it's a fun comedy to me, um, so I'm interested to to see where this goes because it's not really one that I think about relationally a lot. Yeah, I think the object of of the podcast, as we say in the opening, is not necessarily to get all the way into the original movie. There is always someone else who's who has talked about Tootsie and who has kind of gone into it. So I will sort of back off from there. I think, even though this is a movie that if they didn't. If they didn't have it on the list, I absolutely would would include it. It's it's just it is a wonderful movie. Um, the theme for this week is "Shame on you, you macho shithead," which is taken from a, a line of dialogue from from where Michael is going to his first audition as Dorothy, and he's getting he's getting some some guff from the casting director, and from the person he'll be directing, Dabney Coleman, playing one of the great jerks in the history of a career of playing great jerks. Like, this this might be the, the best one for him. But he's, he's sort of getting on to them about what they want versus, versus what he thinks the role should be. So he says, I know what y'all, and again, he's using an interesting Southern accent for this. I will approximate the voice later. Um... But he says, I know what y'all really want is some gross caricature of a woman to prove some idiotic point. That power makes a woman masculine, or masculine women are ugly. Well, shame on you for letting a man do that, or any man that does that. That means you, dear Miss Marshall. Shame on you, you macho shithead. Which, which as as he does in the, Emily, in the uh, Dorothy Michaels voices, shame on you, you macho shithead. And that's that's basically how it comes out. And I just, I've just always sort of thought that was a, an incredible animating ethos. So for this, for this episode, I have two macho shitheads to offer up in, in movies, and we'll talk about what makes them that way and how they got that way and which one of them deserves to be on the list. The first one is uh, HUD, of HUD. Uh, HUD is a 1963 movie by, by Martin Ritt. And then the second one is Martin... Um, is Sadie Thompson, uh, which is by Raoul Walsh, and that one is from 1928. And the macho shithead in question in that one is played by Lionel Barrymore, a character named Davidson. But we will start in the 60s. Before we, before we even get there, I have a little bit of trivia. This is the first movie I have offered in 30-plus episodes from the 1960s. And... Part of that is just kind of accidental, but also it's not, because I really just do not think that highly of the 60s in terms of American movies, and I think we could get into why that is. Maybe that's a decil later on about me just being mad about the 60s and movies, but like, there just aren't that many of them that really stand out. This one is absolutely a standout on its own terms. I mean, we have talked about the 60s somewhat explicitly with some of the AFI entries, but mm-hmm. I hadn't realized it had been... I mean, that's just the beginning, isn't it? Since you had a 60s movie? <laughs> it is It is. however many I've offered up. I think I've done 
what is it, 62 before this, and the 63rd movie is the first one from the 1960s. Uh, I have not counted exactly how many come from, like, the 80s or 90s or something. I think there are, I think there have been 11 from the 80s at this point, so I think that just sort of gives you a sense of, of how little I think of the 60s. Not even... It's not even like the 20s, where the problem is my own ignorance. Like, I will cop to being a little bit ignorant about your silent era movies and, and just not having as many of those available in my head. But, like, the 60s, I feel relatively good about knowing some, and I, st I just can't find room for them. But this one, this one definitely deserves to be talked about, um, if for no other reason than it has two great things about it. One of those great things is the more important one, and it's actually not that... In, this, in the sense of the theme we're talking about, it is not essential to it, and the other one is absolutely essential to it. So the cinematography by James Wan Howe in this movie is kind of... Depending on who you ask, it's kind of his magnum opus, and the way this thing is shot is just absolutely sensational. This is a brilliantly put-together movie. Uh, Martin Ritt is, is always a good director. I, I usually feel pretty good seeing his name at the front of a movie. Uh, but James Wan Howe is just this a remarkable cinematographer who could take any kind of material and shoot it in ways that are exciting and like really focus in on the characters and he had this great use of shadow and this great use of movement and a sense of how the camera ought to move. Um, there are certain, there are just names in the credits who you see and you're like, okay, I, I need to pay attention to how they do their thing. James Wan Howe in this movie is like one of those, one of those people you pay attention to. But the movie is, is not necessarily a, a JWH vehicle. It's more of a Paul Newman vehicle. And I have already talked on this podcast about how I am not the world's biggest Paul Newman fan, but this movie, holy cow, is he terrific in this. Like, this is, for me, the absolute peak Paul Newman performance, and it is not merely a peak Paul Newman performance, but it's, like, one of the best performances I've ever seen, period. Uh, he plays, like I've said, HUD. Um, I guess that's short for something. I've literally never thought about it. But he he is playing HUD, who I imagine is Hudson. Is that what you're motioning me about? I was motioning that I'll figure it out, but you go ahead. <laughs> All right. So so I assume I assume that's not what's on his birth certificate. We'll put it that way. Uh, HUD is the is the heir to a Texas cattle ranching operation, which is being run by his father Homer. Uh, Homer is played by Melvin Douglas, who's giving an absolutely incredible performance. Um, and he is in an interesting position with his with his dad. So on one hand, he is very much looking for his father's approval. So like part of it is that he he knows his father doesn't like him all that much, doesn't respect him all that much, and that's killing him. And at the same time, uh, he doesn't really want to need his father's approval because he sees his father as hopelessly old-fashioned, out-of-date, and, and easy to take advantage of, which to some extent he is. Um, HUD, the reason he has a bad relationship with his father is because some years ago, um, he and his brother Norman, his older brother Norman, who was presumably like a better guy, um, they got into an accident HUD was driving, or at least HUD was considered responsible for it. Um, so now the only the only son who Homer has left is the one who is this kind of, you know, um, womanizing, irresponsible, headstrong figure. And the movie actually starts off with HUD's nephew, Norman's son, played uh, played by Brandon DeWilde. The character is Lonnie. Uh, Lonnie is sent out to go find HUD because he's with someone else's wife at the time and he's supposed to like come home um, and not stay out all night with other people's wives. So that's that's like how the movie starts off. But HUD also kind of has a point about his father because his father is this sort of old school rancher. He has a line in the movie about, you know, I, I want to make sure that I can see what what I've made. Like if I'm going to make money, I want to see it. 
and I want to know what I did to make it happen. Uh, so someone who believes very unironically in the satisfaction of a hard day's work. And of course it is, it is difficult work to raise cattle. It is difficult work to get them from birth to, to round up to slaughter. Like that's, that's just hard to do. Um, and the A plot of this movie is about the family falling apart. But the B plot of the movie is about how there's this disease that's killing off the cattle and everyone's scared it's foot and mouth disease because if it's foot and mouth disease, they're going to, the government will come in and kill all the cattle and then the, the ranch will be on the edge of bankruptcy. And HUD is saying, first off, well, look, why don't we just sell the cattle before the government gets here and then it's someone else's problem, which shows you something about his character. And then later on, he has a much better idea, which is, well, what do we care if the cattle die? Because we should be getting into oil. Which, for the 60s in Texas, he has absolutely the right idea. Um, that this is this is the time when he should be, you know, taking all of this land, all this acreage, and, and turning that into how can we tr make money out of the oil that is presumably under the ground here. Um, what, I, what I do like about this movie, and it is based on a Larry McMurtry story, so you can sort of, you know, there's, there's pedigree in here. Um, but the, the movie is very good about saying, it's sort of like the onion meme, you know, about the, the worst person, you know, just made a great point. There is a lot of that in this movie that HUD is probably the worst person we can find, uh, arrogant and, and sort of disrespectful and, and a cheater and a liar and who's, who enjoys corrupting other people. But occasionally he'll say something and you're like, mm, he has a good point there, <laughs> whether or not we want to admit it. Yeah, I was going to, I was trying, searching around the name thing. You just mentioned McMurtry, but I was going to bring that up too. I didn't realize that until just now, um, which makes this episode kind of sadly topical since he just passed so um you know if you're interested in some more contemporary western uh related literature mcmurtry is a the name really um but that also does like that crystallized some for me in terms of the characterization here and just mcmurtry himself as like this grumpy dude with a lot of good points um I think the name is just HUD. Like, that's sure, just okay. his name. <laughs> um, and I did stumble across, looking through multiple things on Britannica, uh, frames HUD as a raw and contemporary take on the Western and featured Paul Newman as perhaps the most unsympathetic character he ever played. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the genius of casting Paul Newman here, is because... This, this movie's in black and white, for one thing, which is kind of important because with the with the blue eyes in color, it's kind of hard not to love him because he's hot. But in this one, you can just tell that he's gorgeous and that you you were not necessarily rocked by the by the the halogen headlight characteristics of his of his eyes. So you've got you've got that going. Um, but he, like all of the things that make that make Newman so charming are, are weaponized here. Like, you think about a movie like Cool Hand Luke, which is not a movie I care about very much, but there is something very cool and rebellious about him, and, and like, he is definitely the kind of guy you can see yourself getting behind because he, he talks a big game, and he's funny, and he's charismatic. And all of those things are twisted on the dial about 15, 20 degrees, and what turns into... Uh, or I should say what he turns into instead of being this sort of charmingly rebellious renegade is this dangerous, dissolute individual who has no moral code to speak of. And who, again, has has a little bit of tragedy in him, that, that he is responsible for his brother's death uh, and that he has lost the love and respect of his father and that he's not going to get it back. But the reason he's never going to get it back is because he never does anything to fix it. He never does anything to show that he himself has changed. Uh, and, and that is sort of underpinning that relationship. So I think about HUD, there, as, as anyone who's been in the world would know, there are all kinds of macho shitheads out there. 
And and I think that the macho shithead that Hud is 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 the one who appeals mostly to other men. Um, so you you see him, and you can see uh, the kind of person who your pickup artist is going to get behind because of how how ruthlessly he goes from woman to woman, and and how physically aggressive he can be with women when he wants something and doesn't think he's going to get it otherwise. Uh, there is a subplot with Patricia Neal, who who is uh, playing the housekeeper. And there's sort of this harmless flirtation going on between them for a lot of the movie, and then HUD decides he wants more than that. She says no. He assaults her. She gets on a bus that night. Like, to her credit, does not stick around to see what else will happen. Um, but that's the, I mean, that's the kind of guy who gets a fair amount of respect from another certain equally awful kind of guy. Um, but the character for whom that's, that's most important is Lonnie. Uh, because for a lot of the movie, Lonnie is sort of following around HUD because HUD is the most, again, it's the cool hand Luke thing. He's the most charismatic, exciting guy in town. There's always action where he is. He always wins his fights. Uh, he can get away with anything. And Lonnie is sort of drawn to that. And HUD recognizes that Lonnie's doing some hero worship. And he slips in little things like, this is what me and your dad used to do together. And there's just enough of that in there where you can tell that that Lonnie is sort of getting swept up in the idea of I'm like my father who I never knew so much. Um, I get to I get to sort of bathe in the same kind of glory that they must have once upon a time when they were raising hell together. And you can sort of see that acting on on Lonnie for most of the movie until eventually he realizes what what a terrible guy his his uncle is and in the end uh once Lonnie can can no longer be strung along once he can no longer be fooled now that he's got the evidence behind him for a couple of reasons which I won't get into for spoilers I guess but there are there are things that force him to reconsider his uncle at the end of the movie, Hud is, is left totally alone at the ranch, and there's this famous last shot where he, like, goes into the screen porch, pulls some food out of a fridge, and then goes further into the house, and the screen door just sort of slams much too loudly, but again, it's not too loudly at all, but, but slams behind him. And you get the sense of, like, this is where the shame on you aspect of this comes in, because the movie is absolutely... As much as as much as I think it would be possible to read Hud as this kind of anti-hero who it would be good to emulate or who it might be nice to to be more like, I think the the film is also very clear that this is not the kind of person we should grow up to be. That maybe as as idealistic and old-fashioned and out of style and and doomed as Homer is, his father. I, I think the movie is not necessarily more optimistic about HUD. So that's that's that film, uh, a movie which I think is absolutely beautiful to look at. It is one of the great contemporary westerns, uh, by which I mean it's like a western set in, in, in its own present day. Um, terrific performance. There is not, I mean, there's really not a bad performance from any of the four major characters. Just a, a really, really good movie. Really, really good, solid all around. Too bad it's not on this list, but then I guess I, I wouldn't be able to talk about it. Thoughts about, about HUD? Um, just thinking about the macho shithead theme. I don't want to say complicated, but uh, I suppose it's nice to begin with or see anyway the type of shithead that, like, you could be better. Like, you have good points at times, and, like, there's something there to build on, but you're still just a shithead. Um, so I guess that sort of complication of the idea, which I don't know, Tootsie kind of does too. Like, you know, it's still shitheads at the end of the day, but like there's some, like you, you could build off of something there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying those two are exactly the same, but just the, like, I like that as I like to see that for this theme so far anyway. Um, I think that makes it a little, uh, easier to invest with in a, in a certain way. Well, I think it's the, it's like the immaturity in both of them. Like there's the rejection inherent in being an actor, no matter how good you are. And then there's the rejection 
inherent in having done something like frankly unspeakable through your own irresponsibility and the two of them instead of learning how to become better people or learning from from the experience just sort of go full bore into well if if you're going to reject me then I'll just give you the finger on my way out and we'll see how it goes from there buddy um which is which is kind of what yeah I think I think both of them have that in common I think it's the basic immaturity that undergirds a lot of the macho shithead types um and the willful immaturity at that just if you don't get your own way which you expect to given privilege like there's just a, maybe it's not even immaturity, but just incapability of actually wrestling with that in some healthy, meaningful way. Um, or somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. Yeah, when I wrote about this movie um, over a year ago now, I, could, I couldn't believe how long it had been. This was a relatively early pandemic watch for me. Um, there were like two comparisons I found myself making for, for HUD, and one of them was that he's the kind of person who would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven like that's definitely his thing but there's also like this kind of kennedy-esque aspect to him um and of course this movie is released i'm gonna double check here but this, yeah this movie is released before kennedy is assassinated and there is something about like the younger generation as smart and bright and and uh ruthless and forward thinking in their own way as they are that doesn't necessarily make them sympathetic um not that i think this is a necessarily like some kind of conservative movie or anything but i i do think that there is there is kind of a lament for you know this is who we're left with we're left with we're left with a uh, hud bannon and we're left with jack kennedy that there is something of the the same kind of cloth about them which i thought at the time, anyway. Again, I wrote this a year ago, but at the time, I thought that was a kind of interesting place to, to go. I, I, sorry, just real quick. No, go ahead. No, I mean, I'm just interested in that comparison and, like, spelling that out even more. Not here, necessarily, but, like, in long form because of just how, uh, like, baldly clear that makes the importance of charisma and, like, mm -hmm. Kennedy's world-beating charisma versus what HUD seems to utterly lack. Um, I don't know. There's just a constant, like, topicality of that that is, like, interesting to to spell out, but also just kind of depressing. That, like, you can take the same kind of man, basically, but if you give him enough charisma, then they take over the world. <laughs> All right, next movie, uh, a much less character, or much less uh, charismatic, I should say, macho shithead. That's Lionel Barrymore in this movie, uh, who of course is a wonderful actor, but not a not a hottie, uh, not a hottie like JFK, and not a hottie like Paul Newman. This is already a a adult, not cute Lionel Barrymore, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little. Sadie Thompson is based on, well, golly, it's based on a few things. Um, the original impetus for it is a short story that became a play. Uh, the short story is by Somerset Mom, and that's called Rain. And Rain would get remade like four years later with Joan Crawford in it, uh, because once upon a time you could just remake things every four or five years and no one got mad at you about it. The other story that I think this bears a lot of, um, a lot of connection to, it's hard to watch this and not see that story, is an opera which is based on a novel. So the opera is more famous, but it's called Thais, and Thais is uh, famous for as a as a Massenet opera. Um, the the big moment in there is this violin piece called Meditation, or en, Fran uh, en français Meditation, which is uh, this sort of lovely orchestral piece, a uh, solo for violin, but. Whatever. We don't have to talk about opera on this podcast. I remember how badly it went at trivia. Uh, the people just don't seem to respond to opera the way we do, which, shame on them, the macho shitheads. I also am hoping this gets to you saying it's just based on all of Victorianism, because I'm reading the Wikipedia page currently, and in the first line it says it's the story of fallen women, so I could name you a whole bunch of things it's based on. The reason it stands out to me as a as a Thais um, 
descendant is because Thais, the the opera, it's set in not ancient Egypt. It's set in like uh, post New Testament Egypt, basically, um, which is ancient for us, I guess. But ancient Egypt means something <laughs> totally different when we say it. But it's it's set there um, in the in the early years of Christianity, and there are some desert monks uh, who know about this this famous courtesan and and one of them decides it's going to be his job he takes it upon himself to convert her uh and his the leader of his order is like what are you doing just like calm down a little bit and this guy's like no i'm gonna do it and and he does he successfully uh, gets to tice this this beautiful woman this this uh famous courtesan and, and gets her to convert to Christianity. That's where the violin piece comes in, because violins and Christianity go together, just ask Nero. And that particular moment is, is sort of a double-edged sword for, for the main character, who has, over the course of knowing this beautiful woman and, and now controlling her, her thoughts and, and what she does, has fallen in love with her. And... The fact that he has now made her into the kind of woman who will never sleep with him, never marry him, and of course he, by his monastic bonds, can't do that either, it drives him crazy. And that's that's sort of the, the twist in, the, in that story. And this one does something very similar, uh, except instead of being in Egypt, it is set in what is now American Samoa, but what we used to much more picturesquely refer to as Pago Pago. And in... In that particular setting, there are some Marines hanging out. Um, there are some local people. I mean, it's it's a it's it's meant to be just like the most remote setting. Um, and of course, there is some Victorian idea of well, if it's hot, there must be sex. You know, like that's like it's even hotter than Italy. By golly, if it's hot, they must be bothered. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a much better way to put it. So, like, because people are hot and bothered. The, the story begins with, with Sadie Thompson, the main character, played by Gloria Swanson in one of her later uh, silent roles. Gloria Swanson, who normies will remember from Sunset Boulevard uh, as, as Norma Desmond. Um, Swanson is, of course, still the, the screen idol who she was in 1928. And she's playing this, this prostitute who's come out from San Francisco. Uh, she is not necessarily into trying to start up the whole business again. She meets a Marine uh, named O'Hara, who's played by Raoul Walsh, who also directed the movie. Um, she she falls for him, he falls for her. Things seem to be going pretty well. Uh, and then the missionary starts to get involved. So I think on the same boat, I don't, I'm pretty sure it's the same boat, the missionary and his wife come, uh, and the missionary is Davidson, played by Lionel Barrymore. And where other people see her and she thinks like, oh, she sings, she dances, she's really pretty, like what a great time this woman is. Um, Davidson looks at her and sees her as a threat to civilization writ large. And so he basically looks at her and, and sees her as someone who he has to eradicate, pretty much. So Davidson does a few things to to try to set her on the straight and narrow. He he goes about trying to convert her. Uh, he does some, just sort of that generic scolding. He does some complaining to the authorities. Uh, at one point, he even, like, writes back to San Francisco to figure out why she left and discovers that she was actually, like, wanted by the law in San Francisco. And he, like, wants to... He wants to get her deported, like, has just got it in his head that this woman needs to be kicked out of American Samoa because she will corrupt everyone there, destroy his ministry, whatever. And this is this is an interesting performance because Barrymore, who I think most people are going to remember from, like, I don't know, um, It's a Wonderful Life, most likely, but he's, I mean, he's younger here. This is, this is his younger era when he was, like, one of the, the great actors of the period. One of the few, one of the few who, like, transitioned really easily into sound movies, as it were. He's giving a performance that I think is every bit as good as what Paul Newman was doing in HUD or what Dustin Hoffman's doing in Tootsie. 
uh, just without the the benefit of 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 getting to speak so much. Um, but he is so so adamant with her, and and so unyielding. Eventually, he manages. Uh, by hook or by crook, which one of those is the one that's supposed to mean something physically bad is happening? Uh, hook, I think. <laughs> that's my thought too, but I don't know. So by hook or by crook, he manages to uh to convince her to to repent of her sins. He he sort of talks to her about hell and talks to her about O'Hara and and what she might be doing that's bad for him, and she decides that she's gonna take up this whole Christianity business and, and, you know, live a better life and live a, a more moral life. And even maybe for the sake of O'Hara, go back to San Francisco and, and head to jail. Um, I mean, really taking the whole thing in, but Davidson is, uh, this is where the macho shithead business comes in is a macho shithead imbued with the power of decency. Um, because there are some who, are macho and shithead because they they attract other men to their thrall and, and make them want to do equally bad things. But there are some who who take this sort of masculinized version of what goodness is or religion or faith or decency or civilization or whatever you want to call it and who decide to use that as a cudgel. And this is this is a message which no one over the age of seven really needs to have explained to them. But that's that's what this movie from, again, 1928, is is doing. It, it should be mentioned, this is a pre-code movie. There is some stuff that maybe it'd be harder to get away with in 10 years from, from this point. But in 28, you could do this kind of stuff pretty freely. Um, Davidson starts to act more and more erratically. So there is some level of, I still believe this stuff, I believe in my religious principle... And at the same time, why on earth am I so attracted to her? And why can't I get this woman out of my head? And what exactly is going on with me? Uh, I am married, and I am the symbol of Christianity on Pago Pago. But here I am in this incredible rainstorm. He goes out in this, in this huge thunderstorm because he can't bear not to see her. And he's like trying to peek into her window to see to see what she's doing and to try to like be with her in this kind of secondhand way. And he goes back pretty shaken uh, because this is a ludicrous thing for a human being to do, let alone a missionary. And he goes back to his room and she's already there. And she's like, I, I thought I saw someone. Um, I was so freaked out. I decided to come to you for comfort. And that only, that only serves to mess him up further. Um, the movie is just as, as knowledgeable about what kind of what kind of shithead this is as as HUD is, and at the end of the movie, um, some fishermen find his body. He's like killed himself because he can't handle it anymore. So it, it follows an old story, a story which is older than Thais even. But like that's that's generally the the thrust of Sadie Thompson. That's where the macho shithead thing comes in. This one is a little bit harder to find. I'm not sure it's on YouTube, which is a shame because there are some there are some um, movies that you can get from YouTube that are silent, but I don't think this is one of them. This is one I happen to, to get off TCM once upon a time, but if you are interested in HUD, that one's on Amazon pretty frequently. Anyway, getting away from that. Thoughts on, on Sadie Thompson? I'll just say Google it real quick if you're, I don't know, I, not too much, I guess. I just, I'm, I'm glad we got two different, like, archetypes of macho shitheads here, and this one being the one that blames the women for all his feelings and problems. Um, and also the lusty variety of it, but in both cases, I mean, I, again, that speaks to a certain immaturity or just uh, inability to actually manage feelings and emotions in any healthy way um so 
Yeah, I, I, like, I, I see the through line between all of these, so I, I like the category in that way, but we do get just kind of different archetypes of the same thing, and I, I think that's fun overall, but uh, in terms of specifically for the movie, not too much, really. Um, <clears throat> for whatever you lack in knowledge of 20s movies, I am a <laughs> hundred times less knowledgeable, <laughs> um, so it's fun to hear about them. I do enjoy hearing... Um, especially the pre-code stuff. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm just sort of along for the ride on this one. It is It is interesting. I'm glad you said the thing about um, just sort of reiterating the macho stuff and, like, how that, like, is taken out on women so much. I, I think it's, it's worth just sort of reiterating that, like, Dustin Hoffman, tiny little dude, not exactly, like, anyone's big idea of macho. Um, Paul Newman... A little bit, a little bit too leonine, I think, to be, like, pure macho. Like, not exactly, like, a big muscles dude. Like, he's... The thing about Paul Newman is how pretty he is, and not necessarily, like, how big and strong or whatever. And Lionel Barrymore is, you know, shaped like a normal human being. Like, he's, like, like a normal guy. Um, I mean, I do think that, that if you're watching this movie in 1928... The idea of muscular Christianity is kind of, you know, part and parcel of your understanding of the faith, um, the sort of Victorian origins of of this particular story, going back to the Victorian novel, French though it is, um, that this is originally based on. I think. I mean, you can you can see the the same kind of origins in Victorian society with muscular Christianity and like how if you are going to be a Christian, it is not a bad thing to be kind of macho and in people's faces and tough and physical about it and like how that all sort of blends together. And I, I do think the movie, without having to say so much about it, does kind of give you that vibe. Um, even though, once again, Lionel Barrymore is not is not a He-Man any more than I am. So, like, no, but I, I like that. Right in the 20s, 60s, and 80s, too, we're getting these, uh, I think if you call them anything, they're handsome guys, mm -hmm. especially Newman, definitely Newman, but, like, <clears throat> they're not the bodybuilder types, they're not the, like, uh, intimidating-to-look-at types, um, so messing with our sense of macho in that way a little bit, that it, you know, they are varying degrees of looking like any one of us except Paul Newman, but like that's that person can be even more a shithead than someone who looks like or who just looks incredibly intimidating, who looks classically macho. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely pervades down the hotness chain or the or the muscles chain or, or whatever you want to call it. So those are those are the three movies. Um do I need to say more specifically about any one of them, or are you good on the on the spiel? I think I'm good on them individually. I maybe I think I have an idea of where I might go with this, but it's not settled yet. So the spiel could could switch some things up here. But I think I'm ready. The the high variance fourth quarter spiel, my favorite. All right, so the original film here is Tootsie. Which alone of the of the three is a is a pure comedy. Um, Tootsie, the 1982 Sidney Pollock movie starring Dustin Hoffman, as a very difficult actor who can only get work by by dressing up in drag and, and fooling everyone around him, uh, is slow to learn some lessons about about how the ways that men act badly might also mean that he acts badly as well. Uh, and, and that's kind of what that movie is doing. There is an immortal line in there in which he says to someone, Shame on you, you macho shithead. And that is the, the basis for this episode. And also maybe the opening music from now on? I'm not really sure. Anyway, uh, the first the first option we have is HUD. Uh, Martin Ritz, 1963, contemporary western. Paul Newman plays a character who is... Every inch that guy, sort of this perfect man's man, um, entirely ignorant of consequences, and, and less because he doesn't know they're coming, but because he doesn't care, because he will always get out of it. Someone who acts as, as like a Pied Piper figure for his, for his nephew, who is this decent kid, uh, as the brother who 
HUD accidentally killed was a decent guy, but who is easily corrupted, and showing how this sort of macho approach can can derail people who otherwise might be productive and, and decent men, um, and showing, too, how, you know, that, that macho-ness can sort of fade generationally, like it can be expressed differently, because there's nothing quite as macho as a, as you know, a Texan rancher with hundreds of acres on on his farm, but that macho can be perverted into something very different as as Homer, the sort of classically macho Texan guy, uh, sees that same level of of pride and and power sort of turned into something uglier in his son HUD. And then in 1928's uh, melodrama location piece, I guess, not like they went to Samoa, um, but in Sadie Thompson, we can see how Lionel Barrymore's character is a different kind of macho shithead, one who relies less on his, on his own version of being able to do whatever he wants and being macho and being tough and more on what he can pretend comes out of scripture or what he can get out of his own his own uh, difficult and and strict idea about decency and about civilization and about how people should act and how he uses that to to muscle a conversion on a prostitute who's sort of at the end of her rope and who is unwise enough to fall in love with her and to to be completely wrapped up in her even though on the outside all he can do is castigate her and and in the end his death as much as it would be convenient to blame it on a woman, uh, convenient to blame it on the prostitute who he has been swept away by, it's it's on him. It is entirely possible for a macho guy, a Marine like O'Hara, who ends up marrying Sadie, and, and that's the implication at the end of the movie, um, it's possible to, to be a macho guy <laughs> and, not, and not ruin a woman's life or, and not try to destroy her, but... For a macho shithead like Davidson, it is it is impossible impossible not to do it, and he ends up paying for it. So those are the the two pictures I've got. What do you think? So the spiel actually did help me clarify, though it though it concretized the the way I was already leaning. So, um, and it's basically what you said at the end there. Um, so I'm going with Sadie Thompson here um, because of. That just doesn't happen in HUD at all, but of that very clear, like, the macho-ness has to come at the expense of others, of uh, women in particular, that the sense of masculinity or power there is directly tied to um, this other person must be conquered or, or vanquished or exiled in some way. Um, and that wrapped up as well in what we were mentioning a little bit earlier, the just he's he's blame <clears throat> that inability to wrestle with your actual feelings so then someone else has to be demonized and the reason and if you cast that out then everything will be better um so that just raw display of power and privilege along gender and religious lines here um i think hiding behind the decency or potential decency of religion just an extra wrinkle though certainly hud the hiding not hiding behind, but like benefiting from the reputation of your father and just this seemingly up, you know, upright family and and business and profession, um, <clears throat> but being just a different kind of shithead and all of that. Um, so that's definitely happening in HUD. But yeah, I'm going with Sadie Thompson for those reasons as well as something that I don't think we talked about. Uh, explicitly but just the fact that this is on pongo pongo and the right it's a story of lust in a way set in a tropical locale and just how it's building on that insanely obvious trope um which i was worried about at the very beginning how that was going to reflect on the movie but as you've talked about it it seems like it's playing with that as well as kind of another uh, moment of colonialism i mean writ large also um kind of missionary work religious outreach religious colonialism um and you start feeling a particular way and that becomes the fault of 
whoever's whomever's around you, whether that's uh, a prostitute hiding from a, a <clears throat> or a runaway, really, or whether that's right a colonial site like American Samoa. Um, so turning that macho anger outward on <clears throat> that place that you're invading anyway. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot going on in that movie. Um, but yeah, kind of what you said at the end of that spiel there that it it's it's always in direct relation and targeted at someone else as well. Like that's kind of what set me over the edge. It is interesting. Um, cause like I was saying, these, these are two movies that have really big names that did the original, the original work. So between McMurtry and mom, who are like two people who I, who I think the world of as as just really excellent writers it is kind of fun to have, and this this was absolutely not intended, but it is it is fun to have a movie that's got like some source material that's already got like some of that intelligence and that and that depth kind of baked in, um, and it and it is, you know, not like it not like every movie has a that has good pedigree ends up being good, but you can sort of tell that the ideas have been turned over a few times before before anyone's camera started to roll, which which I think is important. And they did do a good job in adaptation, bringing that kind of depth in from, from writers who you'd expect that depth from. It's kind of fun, too, that both movies, comes out, both movies come out uh, kind of early in the writer's reputations. Not that Mom wasn't known, but like it's before the he's the highest paid of the 1930s thing. Um, and McMurtry, I think... Would really become bigger, seventies and then definitely eighties, even into the nineties a little bit, like kind of a slow, steady build for him. So, uh, it's kind of interesting that we see two movies early in their reputations as well. I think, but like you just said, that have that grounding of their novelistic voices. All right, last time for this. The theme for this week: shame on you, you macho shithead. From Tootsie, uh, the 69th movie on the AFI list, Matt's options were HUD and Sadie Thompson, and he went with Sadie Thompson um, for good reason, I think. Even though these are both movies I think really, really highly of and, and encourage people to seek out, um, I, I definitely could have seen either one here. So, if you like this episode, you are interested in episodes like this, uh, maybe you are interested less in macho shitheads and more in the relatively chill vibes of of native tongues um and and you wanted to check out the episode which preceded this the part one in which matt discussed the low-end theory and tribe called quest and and some of the offshoots of that movement that is on our website subtitlespodcast.com on subtitlespodcast.com you can find that episode other back episodes you can find links to my uh, letterboxd his spotify you can find links to both of our blogs and you can see a little bit about us if that kind of thing is uh floating your boat we will see you next time